Go ahead and be seated. Okay, so when I say now, everybody shout where you're from. No, wait, I didn't say now. Tennessee. Somebody over here said, as soon as I walked up to him, he said, the answer is Tennessee. And I said, what's the question? A place that I want to live? Okay, ready? Now. Look at that, Nebraska. This is my friend, Carl Pagan Kemper, good friend for many years. He and his wife are visiting us. He's from Nebraska. And like the rest of you, we understand why you come here. We just don't know why you go back. I mean, look at this. You got to admit, it's pretty good except for the smoke in the air. So, Carl, read us a verse. Now the reading. Am I on? You will be in a second. I am now on. I can hear myself. I'm reading from Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And you let me stand. Yeah. Pray with me. For our time together, Lord, speak. Would you use the life and words of Jim to speak to us? And would you make us ready hearers? What a beautiful day with the birds and the mountains. We are prepared to listen. Thank you for our gathering and the music and the worship. Now we want to hear from you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks, Carl. Carl and I have been friends for many years. We're peers and colleagues and friends, most importantly friends. We went to the same seminary. He was at uh, dean at Grace University for many years, and now he's in pastoral ministry, kind of pastoral slash academic, but just like me, so it's fun to have him up here. Well, glad that you're here. Thanks for coming today, all of you. I made it down this row. I didn't get too much up there yet to say hi to people. That's because the reason why I didn't make it up there was that the people down here like to talk. And everywhere I went, they wanted to talk to me. And so some Sundays, I just can't make it up there. Sorry about that. Can't help it. <laughs> ah, I love the people waving. Okay, we're, in a, we're doing a theme, God with us, out of the end of Revelation, where God says... Uh, and I will dwell with my people. And so we're looking at that, and surprisingly, we're looking at temples, because that's where God dwells. And so we started last week in, uh, with the idea, uh, went to Genesis, all the way back to Genesis, where we looked at the Garden of Eden as a temple. And I heard from many of you, you'd never thought of the Garden of Eden as a temple, but it actually lays the great basic foundation for what a temple is. It's where God dwells with us. And I made the distinction between God's omnipresence and his presence. The world experiences the omnipresence of God, but we experience his presence, and that's different. It's more personal. So the garden was one of those places, it was the place where God uh, says that in the cool of the day, he was Walking, and he was kind of 
looking for Adam and Eve. Where are you? The implication is that he usually finds them. They're there. I could just picture them enjoying the cool of the day together, walking and talking. It's where they enjoyed his presence in a very intimate, a very real way. Uh, and that's what a garden does. That's what a temple does. So the garden lays out the very first image of the temple. And when we get to the tabernacle and the temple, you're going to see pictures of the garden and the way the temple is constructed in the tabernacle. The trees and the colors and all that to remind them of that. We haven't yet answered the question why. We'll get to that as the summer goes on. So we're talking about temples. And today we're going to talk about sand and covenants. Because we see the temple of God beginning to appear again. Now, I remember last year what I said, I mean last week, what I said was the temple imagery in the Bible starts really small. There's two people. And you know what happened to those two in Genesis. The next time we see a temple appear, surprisingly, is at a burning bush. The language used there is temple language. I'll show you that in a minute. And then as we begin to move from there, we find the tabernacle, and then we find the temple, then we find a new temple, and then we find the spiritual temple. And then all of a sudden when we get to Revelation 5, we find all of the Christians and all of the created uh, creatures in heaven singing together. And God has finally fulfilled his purpose that he started way back here. And his, way, his purpose way back here is to have a people of his own who would love him and worship him and who would love each other. So just take a look around. This is it. This is part of it right here. You're the people that he, he's creating. To find a people of his own that he can claim as his own. And we are proud to be his God. Nancy and I went to a memorial service uh, yesterday for a man that we love dearly, one of the founding members, a World War II vet, one of the founding members of Cadence International, of which we served in a variety of capacities for 20 years. And, um, and so he's with the Lord, World War II vet. So he's pretty old. He's a little older than I am. And so uh, he knew that the time was coming short. The doctors gave him just a very short period of time. So he laid out the whole memorial service. It was fantastic. Every child, every grandchild had a role to play. But the very end, you know what happened at the very end? Up pops the video. And there he is, just before he died. And he says, well, look at this. All my friends from around the world are gathered together here with me or online. It's so good to see you. By now, you've heard how great I am because no one told you about my sins, my inconsistencies, my faults, of which there are plenty. And it was his final message to tell us how much he loved us and how he couldn't wait to see us again when we joined him. And we just all cried. We just wept as we saw him one final time before he went to be with the Lord. That's what God envisions, is a people that, that they lay aside the anxieties of the world. Because today has enough trouble of its own, Jesus said. And today we live life abundantly the way Jesus, God envisioned it and the way Jesus portrayed it. That's what, he, that's what he pictured all the way back here. But you know what happened. You have the fall. Okay, now that adds into the, an entirely new 
dynamic that God has to fix. And this is really the story of Exodus, deliverance. So we find two themes in Exodus, deliverance and presence. They're both there. When we turn, for example, to Exodus 20, um, here's what he says. As he's giving them the Ten Commandments, this is his opening statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, right off the bat, we, we, we're beginning to learn that God is going to restore us. And so this concept of Exodus becomes prototypical, if you will. It's a prototype. It's a shadow of reality. You see, the Old Testament gives us a picture of what reality is going to be like. You can, you can touch the, you know, the stones of the temple. You can hear the animals bleeding as they sacrifice them. Bleating. You can, you can smell them if you've ever been to a, a, a sacrificial temple overseas. You know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, come with me sometime to uh, India or Nepal, and we can watch them sacrifice animals. And you get a, you get a real a visceral a, a feel of what happened. That's a shadow. That's a shadow. So when God is all the way down here and he's formed the church, and he wants to communicate to them what reality looks like, how would you go about doing it? How would you go about communicating the reality that we live in? What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? That we are seated at the right hand of Christ. I can't see that. There's nothing in me that's created this. If I could take these off and put on spiritual lenses, this would look very different. Okay, that's what John experienced in Revelation 4. So how on earth would you communicate the reality of the world that is our certainty? You see, the future is our certainty today. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old, we're part of the new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. Not coming. It's here. We are already, already enjoying the certainty of the future. We just don't know what it's like. And so how would you go about explaining it? Well, let me write a book. That's the way us academics think. Let me write a book and explain it to you. Chapter 1. <laughs> no, that's not what he did. He gave us the Old Testament, which is a picture of tangible reality, which points forward. So, for example, he talks about the spiritual temple down here. Okay, well, we don't have temples in our country. Not really. You, where do we... Where do we go to find out what a temple's like? Do we go to a Hindu temple? I've been to several, many. Buddhist temple, I've been to many. I hope that's not where we go. Nope. We go back over here into the Old Testament, and we look at the Jewish temple. And we begin to see the things present there that tell us who we are. For example, this is where they could come and have the discussions about God. One of my favorite New Testament scholars says theology is a conversation about God. And that's really what it is. Anytime we're talking about God, we're talking about theology. It's not some dry academic topic. It's the very life which we live. So this is what happens here. So when the world looks at us, the spiritual temple, do they see us with life-giving discussions about who God is? Over here, this is where all the great festivals occurred. Three times a year, we had fest they had festivals, okay? You had some at the beginning of the planting season, some in the middle of it, and some at the end. There were seven of them total. The ones at the beginning of the planting season, they look back at deliverance from Egypt, and they thank the Lord. 
and they anticipated an abundant crop. So they're excited about it. The one in the middle was designed because they can now see all the crops growing and they're going, wow, look at all of these crops. Look how God has really blessed us. And that was a reminder to take care of the poor. And then you get to the end and they look back and all the crops are realized and they're, they're harvested. And now they celebrate. Look how God blessed us. And now they look forward again to the beginning of the year and say, at the end of the year and the start of next year, we know he's going to bless us again. So then the year rolls around and here they are again. Look what God did. He delivered us from Egypt and we had this fantastic crop. We've got nothing to worry about. Let's plant. And then we get to the middle and we can see the crops growing. This is fantastic. God has given us all this bounty. Let's take care of the poor. And then you get to the end. The crops have all been harvested. Wow, look what he's done. Now let's see how it works. The cycle. That was a gift to them. So we're the spiritual temple. When the world looks at us, do they see us looking backwards, looking forwards, dancing up and down with delight at how God has blessed us? Or do we worry about what the school board's doing? Or do we worry about what our president's doing? No matter which side of the fence you're on, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Do we worry about the laws that are being tossed around? Do we worry about the conflict and the turmoil and the discussion and culture? Is that what we worry about? I would suggest you got your eyes in the wrong place if that's what you're spending your time anxious about. It's okay to be concerned. I get it. You know, that makes sense to me. But no, when the world looks at us, what they should see is people that rejoice. So when I get to the end of my life, if God permits me, I can do a video and say, well, look at this. All my friends gathered in one place. By now, you've heard about how wonderful I am. I had to submit a uh, bio. I'm going to Mozambique on August 8th. I had to submit a bio. I had to write one to send so they could get the Department of Religious Affairs to approve it so I could go teach. So I sent it to my friend. I had to, said I had to write my own bio to find out I'm a superstar. You can laugh. It's okay. We should be jumping up and down with joy like my friend at the very end of life and saying, look what we have. Look at all the bounty, how God is blessed. Is that what they see when they look at us? Or you come back over here and you have a dispute could go to the priests, the leaders in the temple, you were supposed to be able to go there, and have them in a very fair way mediate for you. Say, let's help you resolve it. Okay? So, so when you get over here, what do you see? When the world looks at us, do they see us suing each other? Fighting in court for that very last dime? I want my way? Or do they say, hear us, see us saying, no, I'd rather go ahead and give it to you. I mean, Acts 2, they had all things in common. They shared with each other. What do they see? So, the Old Testament gives us that very real, visceral, tangible reality to point the way to what life is like spiritually and where our focus should be. So, deliverance is a key part. It's the theme that's one of those themes that runs all the way through the Bible because of Adam and Eve. When you get to heaven, you can thank them. Okay? And so we're here, and God is going to deliver us. Just like he delivered them out of slavery to sin in Egypt. What does Paul say in Romans 6? Jesus has led you out of slavery to sin. So they're enslaved to Egypt. Now we're enslaved to sin. 
And so all of a sudden we have a picture. So the Old Testament, using very real, real things that you could touch, teaches us that true spiritual reality that we couldn't find any other way. So the key to the New Testament is to look into the old. And deliverance runs its course all the way through. But along with that, we have presence. You see, in the ancient world, no person ever had the thought that I can walk into the holy place in the temple. They just didn't do that. They weren't allowed. And so, as Carl read Exodus 19, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 2? You are all now kingdom of priests. And what does John say in Revelation 5? Everybody in all of creation is singing. He has made us a kingdom of priests. We are his prized possession. That's where all this is headed. You might as well start now. That's why Paul says in the Corinthian epistles, when you start to have communion, lay aside all your differences. It doesn't, it's not that important. It's better to be wronged and unified than to be right and divided. That's far better. Okay? So now, the last third of Exodus, by the way, is devoted to... Um, devoted to building the tabernacle. The very first thing God does when he leads them out, he gives them the covenant. If you obey my commands fully, uh, out of all the peoples of nations on the earth, you'll be my prized possession. I'll be your God. I'll make you a kingdom of peace, a royal priesthood. Okay? And they say, we will do that. So then he gives them the Ten Commandments, chapter 20. And uh, they say, all you say we will do. I love it. Because then they turn right around and make the golden calf. They're just like us, right? And so that's what happens, golden calf. And so he says, okay, they need a place to worship. Now, here's what we begin to learn by that. We'll look at it in more detail in the next couple of weeks. But the first thing you get is that he wants to live with us. We're living in tents. So he said, well, I want a tent. So build a tabernacle. That's just nothing more than a tent. And in fact, I want to live right in your midst. So I'm going to be right in the middle, the middle of you. He's in the middle of the nation. The tribes are all around him. So we have a God who wants to journey with us. That's why Jesus, first in John 1, it says he came to dwell and dwelt among us. That's the verb for tabernacle. He tabernacled, if you can turn that into a verb, with us. And so we learn that right away in Exodus that God wanted to be with us. And so he said, I want a tent. Make me one. You all have your tents. I don't have one yet. He spends a whole third of Exodus giving them the picture of what this tent is to look like. And when we get there, we're going to see that it looks a little bit like the garden. But way before we get to that, we have Moses. You know the story of Moses raised in the Egyptian um, the Egyptian Pharaoh's family. So he's been kicked out. He left Egypt. And it says he goes to the far parts of the deserts. Okay, here's a theme that begins to emerge in Scripture. It says that when they were kicked out of the garden, they were kicked out 
and they set a cherub, the cherubim with the flaming sword. We say that could be the lightning because that reappears on the east side of the garden. And then after the flood, as they moved toward Babel, they moved to the east. And you begin to see this imagery of people moving to the east. You know what that is? That east becomes symbolic of moving away from God. So where does Moses go? To the east? No, God sends him to the west. So the east is over there and the west is over here. And that's where he stumbles across the burning bush. God's plan of redemption is revealed with uh, Abraham in Genesis 12. But he begins to implement it at the burning bush. Because Moses is heading back to the west, back toward God. Probably didn't know that, did you? There's so many secrets, so many of these things in the Bible. Every time Carl and I are together every year, we toss through out these ideas and look at them. And so Moses is found on the west side of the desert. And so that's God's plan to start turning us back around. So you know the story of Moses. He's sitting there shepherding, watching his flock all by himself. He looks over and he sees the strangest thing he's ever seen. It's not a strange to have the bush on fire. That's not that unusual. It's just not burning up. So being like any of us, he's real curious. And he walks over and he goes, what on earth is this? I've never seen a bush burning up. And all of a sudden God speaks. Moses, take your sandals off. You're standing on holy ground. For everybody that keeps asking me, yes, I have electrical tape on my toe. I have a planter's wart. I'm just going to tell you. For two and a half years, they've tried everything from surgery to acid, you name it. So finally, the doctor said, let's just do what your grandmother used to do. Put acid on it, wrap it in black tape so it can't have light. That way it'll die. Perfect. So here I am. So now we get past that. So he's, he's standing there with his, in the sand at a burning bush. And the first thing God says is, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. Now, what makes this sand holy, but this sand right over here, 10 feet away, is not holy? How'd that happen? What makes this holy? God's presence. And we learn something very quickly. Moses is standing in God's presence. That did not happen in the ancient world. It didn't happen. He's standing in God's presence. Okay? That's what made it a temple. He had crossed the threshold without knowing it. God had accepted him. So when God, a little bit soon after this, moves into the middle of the Israelites with his tent, he has now allowed them at the very simplest stage to become his priests because they're living in his presence that made them a holy nation. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look in more detail at this, 
so you can understand how he just created a temple. Because a temple is where he dwells. That's what the ancient peoples thought. And so that's why we are called a spiritual temple. That's the reason why. Because God dwells in us. So we become the spiritual temple. We see the earliest version of that right here with Moses. Take your sandals off. You're standing on holy ground. What made it holy? God's presence. What makes you holy? God's presence. That's why Hebrews can say, by the will of God, you have been declared holy once for all time. You know why? You have the indwelling spirit. You have that same heart right here. Starting to beat like his. That's why my friend can say on a video, look at this. All my friends gathered in one place. By now you've heard all the good things about me, how great I am. Nobody told you about my sins and faults and inconsistencies, of which there are many. That's true. And so what happens in the Old Testament is that God puts in place all of these things so that the people, if they bother to look, they can see him. Okay, we went through the Leviticus all in the spring, the winter. Okay, they're not going to remember that when they get spread out around the promised land. Okay, they don't have Bibles. They're not carrying these in their pockets where they can look it up. What's Leviticus 12? They don't have that. So he places priests all around the country to help the people. Number one. Number two is he creates all of these festivals for them, the whole nation, to come together and to remember who he is. Okay, three times a year to celebrate the past with him, the present with him, and the future with him. And it's all good. Well, the third thing he does is creates temples everywhere he goes. So Paul can say, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and you together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He still indwells us. He still lives in our midst. That's the difference between omnipresence and presence. That's the big difference. We get to experience him. You know what that means? That means that we can actually live out what he desires. That's what it means. We can actually live out. I was just reading in my quiet time this morning. Do good to your enemies. Your enemies. Lend to them, your enemies, expecting nothing in return. Why? So that they will know that there's one true God. Did you know you can do that? If God wanted to get your, uh, the attention of your enemy, the best thing he could do is to wrap them right into your life. Because anybody else is going to stab him in the back and you're not going to, you're going to love them. And they don't expect that. That's how we function as temples. As we function as a temple. And I've said many, many times over the years, and most of you have heard it, if we do it right at Dillon Community Church, we can have the best church in the world. And what's more important than that, our own joy, is that all of our friends around us will see it. Because that's what a temple is designed to do. So I saw him in 1 Kings 8, at the dedication of the big temple. He said, and Lord, when the foreigner comes, because they've heard of your name, your great name, for they will indeed hear of it. Listen to them. Answer their prayers so that they will know that you are the one true God. That's loving your enemies. That's loving your enemies. You ever prayed that for your non-Christian friends? Does it know if they believe or not? 
Lord, bless them. Answer their prayers. You ever pray that for your enemies? Lord, bless them so that they will know that you are the one true God. No. It's hard for us to do that, isn't it? That's what being a temple is. So all the way back here with this burning bush, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground because God is present. And God is present right here. That makes this a temple. And so the question is, how do we begin to live out what he desired in this temple? How do we do that? How do we become the people that sacrifice for one another, that care for the poor in our county? We've got to start on it, but we're not there. We're not there. How do we help the disenfranchised, the marginalized, those that don't have life the way we have it? How do we help that? Well, we've made progress, but we're not there. We have a long ways to go. How do we forgive those who hurt us? Not because they apologize, but because they're made in God's image and have dignity and they're worthy of it. How do we begin to turn our hearts so that when we look at our vast estates, and trust me, compared to the world, our estates are vast, and we don't do this, they're mine. How do we look at this and say, God, thank you for this bounty. Help me to use this to bless the people that don't have this. You see, you own nothing. You're only stewards. You own zero. Zero. You're not owners. You're stewards. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care how big your company is that you own and run. That doesn't matter. You're stewards. You own zero. You own zero. Everything you own belongs to the Lord. So how do we turn our hearts to say, by the way, I'm heading to communion with this, just so you know. I mean, offering, so you give more. I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing, okay? How do we turn that heart softer? So we say, God, thanks for blessing me so I can help people. How does that happen? That's what it means to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it goes all the way back to Moses. Take your sandals off, because you're standing on holy ground. And thus begins the greatest journey in the world, the journey to freedom, the journey to help us become what God created us to be. Isn't that a great journey? If the world only knew how wonderful and sweet this journey is. My friend concluded his video with, I love all of you. I can't wait to see you again. That's how I feel. I look out there and I just love all of you, even the ones from Tennessee and Oklahoma. That's what it means to be a spiritual temple. Over the weeks, we're going to look in more detail at this journey that he takes us through. Remember, as you move from tabernacle to temple to spiritual temple, it expands. It gets bigger and bigger. And that's what God's plan is. So ultimately, all of creation will worship him and his glory will fill the earth. Father, thank you for just your kindness because it is so wonderful. Your generosity to share with us so much bounty. We are so thankful for that. And Father, thank you that we have the chance to honor you and to live out what started in the sand, your life, your life amongst us. In your son's name, because he is our high priest, we pray, Jesus, amen.